0: standing by right now is the one and the only sean mooney who mooney everybody's got a price for the million dollar man (laughs) after you threw him off through the announce table Taker climbs back down he gets in the ring and he goes see if he's breathing
1: Uh, well, George Clooney, of course. <laughs> Who else could it be?
0: Attention, Sean Mooney, you scum, you slime, you maggot. If there's no further questions, you're dismissed. Carry on, maggot.
1: Hello, everybody. Once again, welcome to Prime Time with Sean Mooney as we inch closer and closer to our 100th episode. That is amazing, because <laughs> I remember wondering, okay, what am I going to do next week? And that was about a year and a half ago. Uh, we're coming off another great episode, though, with Hurricane Shane Helms. What a great dude. And I don't say that about a lot of people, and I don't use dude very often, but he's just like a great guy. He's like somebody that you would want to hang out with. And uh, you can hear from him every week. He uh, does his Highway to Helms podcast. He's back at it. One of the original uh, wrestling podcasters and kind of uh, laid the pavement for a lot of people who are now into it. Talks about how you know that the uh, Stone Cold and all those guys called him to find out uh, something about whatever these things they call podcasts. And uh, thousands and thousands of uh, hosts later out there, <laughs> they're they're going strong, including this one. Uh, I hope you enjoyed WrestleMania this past weekend. That's a uh, boy, big event in New York City, uh, in the tri-state area. A big crowd there, a lot happening. Uh, we also had our watch-along with Rob Bartlett on Sunday as we took in the very first episode of Raw, January 11th, 1993. Was it really that long ago? Uh, we got uh, his take on uh, becoming part of that uh, you know, uh, history-making broadcast team of uh, Macho Man Randy Savage, Vince McMahon, and Rob Bartlett. Uh, He was there for about 13 weeks, and uh, he said it himself. He said that, uh, you know, uh, as we did this watch-along, he was passing a kidney stone, but that was nowhere near as painful as us making him watch that very first episode of Raw. Oh, man, if you missed it, uh, I know our Patreon members got the opportunity to see it. And also, anybody from the outside as well, just by going to primetimemooneylive.com, primetimemooneylive.com, because if you go there, you can watch the replay. Uh, If you didn't get a chance to take it in. Um, But, you know, if you're a Patreon member, uh, you're a Mooney, or if you're part of the Legion of Who uh, membership, you get to watch all those for free. And uh, you can become a member. We'd love to have you just by going to Patreon.com slash Primetime Mooney. That's Patreon.com slash Primetime Mooney. And uh, be sure you do that. Now, uh, as I mentioned, WrestleMania took place this past weekend. We heard from a lot of folks about the event. I hope you enjoyed it. A lot happening. I think the thing was about five hours long when you took into uh, account all of the other surrounding uh, shows that were a part of that. Uh, you could spend, really, your whole day with the WWE uh, if you uh, wanted to. But um, we heard from a lot of people not only about WrestleMania, but about what happened the night before the event, that Saturday evening at the WWE Hall of Fame induction uh, with the the incident that happened with Bret Hart, uh, and I know everybody knows about this. Been talking about it. That some idiot uh, decided to uh, you know try and get noticed or something. Nobody really knows what the motive was behind it at this point, but he uh, rushed the the stage, which was you know the, uh, a ring basically, and uh, he tackled Bret on stage, and of course that was about the end of it because by then people just swarmed this guy, and uh, boy. As they say, he got his ass handed to him. Uh, boy, uh, Harry Smith, uh, David Boy Smith Jr., a lot of folks know him as his ring name. Uh, David Boy Smith's son uh, got in some pretty devastating shots, as a few other people did as well. But, uh, you know, who knows what's going on with this individual. I think mental illness has got to be involved because they were uh, – you see some of the, the tweets out there that uh, he had some pretty strange offerings that he had out there in the uh, Twitter world. and So uh, who knows? And I'm not even going to mention the guy's name. They have released his name, but I'm not going to justify that. That is not what you want to do. Overall, though, I have to tell you, the, uh, for the Hall of Fame, I really, really like this class that they have this year. I really, really did uh, do. Uh, because, you know, there's always people that, uh, why isn't this guy in? Why isn't, it, you know, hey, every, they do this every year, folks. Eventually, they, they uh, people that you believe uh, should be in there, I will be in there. They have uh, you know, really contributed to the WWE and, and even the world uh, professional wrestling. Eventually, they will get the call. But I think this class was tremendous. I love seeing uh, the honky-tonk man inducted. I'm glad that uh, whatever rough waters he had between himself and the WWE have uh, smoothed out, and he was very gracious. Thank the WWE for the uh, opportunity and all of the great fortune they brought him his way. And really I you can't tell me that HTM does not belong in the WWE Hall of Fame and that also includes another inductee, Brutus the Barber beefcake. And uh, you know you uh, you probably uh, at the, by this time I hope have heard the episode we had with Brutus. a really great episode. but remember back at that time a lot was happening. Uh, him and the Hulkster were not getting along. These are two guys that are lifelong friends and uh, he you know, didn't think he was ever going to get the call to be in the uh, WWE Hall of Fame. And look how things changed. That was about, what, about a year ago that uh, uh, him and the Hulkster are back together, uh, which uh, even at the time we talked about, you know, and I, I told him, I said, I see it happening. So the door's open, and uh, they seem to have worked everything out. And who better than to induct him than the guy he started in this business with? And, and no kidding, Hulk certainly provided many, many opportunities for Brutus, but that guy earned his way. Uh, he was on his own for a long time, went to Japan, uh, really worked his ass off, was a great performer. You cannot deny that that guy was an over. And uh, taking a, gum, a, a gimmick that he didn't want anything to do with, really, just thought, why are they killing me? And it turned out to be a pretty damn popular gimmick that uh, he's still selling today. And uh, it's nice. it's nice to see. Uh, Sue Aitchison is a name that not many people know uh, or knew before but I had the great fortune of working with Sue when I was with the WWF back in the day and, and it, well, this is a time guys when you know the WWF uh, WWE has been incredibly charitable and uh, throughout their existence and it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and they kept getting involved in more and more things well Sue Acheson who was the recipient of the Warrior Award uh, you know which is uh, something that they started with uh, Jim Helwig uh, after his death and um, she is just an incredible person there's nobody better who should be heading up what they do as far as charity goes and I remember back when they were just getting this all going and I, I, I got to be a part of it and I used to do tons of events with Freddie Blassie and also Lord Alfred Hayes uh, You know, Gorilla Monsoon did a lot, Bobby all of them, Gene and and it was really important to them, and and I had uh, a great chance to do all this because I lived in Stanford at the time, and we were local. We did a lot of stuff, but we were also close to New York City, so that you know there's a lot happening there. But Sue I uh, was so happy to see uh, her get into the Hall of Fame, and and uh, you know these people that you don't see out on a stage, but boy, are they heroes, and are are they, and they are certainly stars. And then of course, as I mentioned, with Bret Hart and. Uh, like, I don't want to talk any more about that incident there, but I do want to talk about his speech, which I just thought was really great. Uh, Brett's got a great dry sense of humor, and he had uh, some you know very deadpan lines in there that were just hilarious. And him talking about how they wanted him to be a cowboy, <laughs> and they're going to have him come out to ring- the ringside to, you know, on a horse. And uh, he said, you know, if you come if you come from where I did, uh, you don't tell people you're a cowboy unless you're a cowboy and uh, ended up not wanting to do that gimmick. And he had been flailing in the uh, World Wrestling Federation, as it was at the time. And, uh, you know, according to Brett, he came up with that gimmick and told uh, told them that, uh, hey, why don't you team me up with Jim Neidhart and uh, bring. Jimmy Hart into the mix, and we'll be the Hart Foundation. And they said, uh, you know, you're not a heel. You're you're a babyface, and we'll find something for you, kid." Uh, but a couple of weeks later, he said they came to him and said, "Yes, that's exactly what we're going to do." And the rest is history. And he great uh, he gave great uh, tribute to all of those gr- uh, great tag teams, fantastic tag teams at that time, and that was a big era of the tag team. But he rattled them all off, you know, Strike Force and uh, Demolition and. You know, all these guys, killer bees, and just one after another. And, uh, you know, if, if these guys aren't in the Hall of Fame yet, the, some of those, I believe one day they will be. They certainly deserve it. They're part of that golden era uh, of some of the best times of professional wrestling. But, you know, Brett was just uh, just awesome. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Brett, Brett Hart. Always have been. Loved working with him. And I'm going to get an opportunity to uh, do a show with him at StarCast, at the end of May with the all-in, uh, uh, the second event they're having with Double or Nothing. But I'm really looking forward to seeing him. But uh, I was really touched by his speech and how he gave tribute to Jim Neidhart and said how he made him laugh every day. And, of course, Jim's daughter was there, uh, Natalia, and um, just just great stuff. And, and I love the way he wrapped it up. Uh, I wish I could remember all the lines he was talking about, his, these wise sayings. But the one that really stuck to me was him saying, and it really, you know, it's coming from Bret Hart, if anybody who's going to be able to tell you this. But he said, don't spend the second half of your life regretting how you lived the first half. And that's really true, people. I, I hope you take that to heart, because we all have regrets. And you just, we can't fix them. We can't change them. So we move forward. And, uh, and don't drag it with you. It just does you no good. Just keep moving forward. And I'm sure that uh, Brett has uh, learned a lot of lessons along the way. He talked about how many people he's lost in his life. And I was just really touched by his his whole speech. Too bad it was interrupted, but uh, uh, him being the performer he is, he just uh, dusted off and got back to business. So uh, just thought it was great. Okay, I, I told you we've got a, another great episode coming up uh, this week, a controversial figure we've had uh, many on uh, before. Uh, this guy not not only for what he did in the ring, he was uh, you know had quite a career as a wrestler, but for also for what he did teaching people how to be in the ring. Uh, had uh, as I mentioned quite a career, but uh, was a big part of when they did the Tough Enough series and became a trainer for the WWE, A tough as nails trainer, and um, you know as I mentioned, a lot of people questioned sometime his methods. And we're going to hear all about it. We'll get into it with Bill DeMott. So he's, he's coming up. But before we get there, I want to give a big shout out to uh, What For Apparel. Uh, folks, they're the ones that do all of our uh, great T-shirts that we have out there. Uh, when you go to MooneyTees.com, uh, that's so easy. Well, What For Apparel, uh, they're the ones that uh, do those shirts for us. And if you haven't checked out the PTSM collection, what the heck are you waiting for? But did you know, I mean, you just—you don't have to have a podcast. You don't have to have a tremendous podcast like PTSM to have your own T-shirts. You know, everybody has them. St- you know, Stone Cold and uh, everybody. Uh, Conrad and, and, and Bruce and, and Tony and all. But you can have them as well. Uh, you know, all you have to do is get in touch with What For Apparel. Now, listen to this. Now, what, You can do this with What For Apparel and it, it will cost you zero. Nothing up front. Now, whether you're an artist, a musician, a business owner, an influencer, or whatever the hell that is, uh, you know, or even just someone who has a great idea for a t-shirt and you want to sell them, uh, What for Apparel can help you turn those ideas into marketable products. And what for Apparel is an on-demand print partner solution that will turn your ideas into your very own brand of products. Let me simplify that. When they say, you know, on-demand print partner solution, uh, simply put, is that You come up with a design, okay? And you work with their designers. And uh, it it basically becomes an artistic file that they have. And they have these machines now that you can print one T-shirt at a time. So you put your collection out there on on the website. People can go there. They say, oh, I want that T-shirt. I want a Sean Mooney Hood T-shirt or whatever your design might be. And they place their order. And just like that, they print that T-shirt out they get, they get it shipped out to that person. They take their cut. You take your cut. Everybody's happy. It's a win-win. Can I get any more uh, simple? Uh, you know, other, uh, unlike uh, you know, those other print on-demand platforms that leave you on your own, though, What For Apparel uh, you know, helps you right out. They, they put you in touch. Like you, you have actual phone calls with designers, and you collaborate on your design. And after you approve your designs, they take care of the rest from creating your online store. You'll have your own store to fulfilling customer orders. And you don't have to order a bunch of T-shirts, as I mentioned. Like you can do one order at a time. But let's say you've got a charity event coming up and you need thirty T-shirts, they can do that for you. They can do it all. So, bottom line, What For Apparel helps turn your T-shirt designs into cash, and there is zero upfront cost. Now, for more information, listen to this. You got a pencil, a pen, write this down. WhatForApparel.com/contact. That's what. What slash contact. What for? That's with F O R, not the number. What for slash contact. Or go to What for or at What for Apparel on Twitter. At What for Apparel at Twitter. And then you can send them a message, get this whole thing started. You'll get your free quote and you'll get a consultation. And be sure to tell them that Sean Mooney sent you. Okay? So, what do you say? We get to build the mat. Ding, ding, ding. Folks, I have a great guest this week. He is one intense individual. Uh, Was like that in the ring, and I believe he had the same philosophy as a trainer. He has trained some of the biggest names in the WWE. Uh, It's a long list. Uh, It's interesting, though. At one time, uh, he was known as Hugh Morris. Uh, Get it? Uh, Hugh Morris. Get it, guys? Uh, When he was with the WCW. Uh, Welcome, Bill DeMott. Hi, Bill. Hey, Sean. How you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm... I'm, uh... Thank you for being here. Hey, uh, did Kevin Sullivan, was that uh, kind of a joke that he was doing? Was he ribbing you or did he think you were a funny guy?
0: You know, the, the, story, the story was when I first got to WCW, yeah. uh, they weren't sure what they were going to do with me.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so for a week or two, I was the man of question. <laughs> and that, that was labeled with the man of question. Yeah. I had, you know, question marks all over my stuff. Yeah. But then he came up with uh, humorous. Right. But no one said humorous. All the announcers and Shivani and even even uh, the late great Bobby Heenan said Hugh Morris. Yeah. And so I, you know, I, I went into the office one day and, and literally like a like a you know a, a young guy would go in and complain. I don't get it. I don't. What, why, who, <laughs> why would you call me Hugh Morris?
1: Yeah.
0: And you know, in typical Sullivan, you know, fashion. You dummy! It's humorous. Yeah, and you're yeah. supposed to be crazy. And I went, oh, that's all you had to say.
1: Well, now you tell me.
0: <laughs> so they so they they actually put the Laughing Man Hugh Morris with it, so it was uh, became a little easier to explain. But yeah, that's a, That was a Sullivan uh, Dungeon of Doom.
1: Well, uh, we'll we'll get to uh, your journey there. But uh, I always love to talk to everybody about about their their early beginnings. And uh, you, uh, you grew up in Jersey, um, so tell me what that life was like. I, I imagine you must have been a pretty good athlete or a great athlete. Uh, so what was your journey as a kid?
0: I, I was, uh, I, you know, I, w- I was, a, I was a late bloomer as an athlete. I started playing, I didn't start playing organized sports until my junior year in high school. Really? Uh, single mom, you know, just yeah. that 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 household, and didn't have a lot of, um, uh, you know, male role models, you know, or someone to teach me the games and stuff, you know. So I, you know, I was an outside kid. Uh, played all kinds of ball, just never organized sports. But when it when I caught on, I caught on quickly um was fortunate enough to go on and play two years of high school and then um in college before I left college um and it just just kind of developed as an athlete as i as I got older so when when I left college you know and and i i've said this before my dad my stepdad what, he wasn't a fan of me sitting around after going through all that to become an athlete, mm-hmm. not just going to work you know every day and then not doing anything with With the ability I had, so he took me into a gym in Brooklyn. Turned out to be Gleason's gym. Wow. I met I met Johnny Rods, and uh, thirty years later, the rest is still uh, wrestling history.
1: Yeah, yeah. So where in Jersey?
0: I'm a I'm a Bergen County boy, a prams New Jersey. Yeah. Born and raised.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I, still still call
0: it home after all these years.
1: Yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, I, I I still have a lot of friends in Jersey. Uh, and used to spend a lot of time there when I lived in New York. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I love Jersey. Uh, but anyway, so uh, you meet uh, Johnny Rods at Gleason's Gym. I mean, that was uh, you know the great tradition and that with uh, boxing and then also you know with pro- uh, professional wrestling. Uh, but was it something that you wanted to do? I mean, what, at what point in your life did you say I want to be a professional wrestler?
0: At, at no point until I met uh, Johnny Rods did I ever have a. Uh Notion. I was a I was a casual watcher back then um, in the in the early eighties. Uh, it was still Madison Square Garden on Saturday nights. Um, you could watch it, and that was the thing. I'd watched that with my grandfather, and you you know uh, Pedro Morales and and I don't know what politically correct is now, but it was the midgets and the women. Oh yeah. So it was Pedro Morales and Bruno and the midgets, and so Saturday nights on MSG. And that, that was my kind of my knowledge of, of wrestling. Until I met Johnny, and, and, and Johnny, you know, in no uncertain terms, told me it wasn't for me. I could watch. I could come in and watch, but he didn't think a guy like me could ever pick up on, on that kind of uh, athleticism and the things they were doing at the time. Mm-hmm. Taz was there before me and um, Damien Demento. Mm-hmm. So they were there, but Johnny Rods told me it wasn't for me. So when I left that day after watching that, you know, I told my dad. I said, "Well, that that just kind of lit a fire under me mm. because I didn't like being told that the guy who just met me for ten minutes didn't think I could do something." Huh. So I, uh, I always I used Eddie's famous lines of big and stole thirty five hundred dollars, and went back the following week and paid in full. Huh. And I spent every waking moment I could in that school. And even when I was doing it, I had no there were no grand delusions of becoming a, 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 a WWE superstar or a WCW superstar or a star in Japan. Mm-hmm. I just I just started to fall in love with wrestling, and mm-hmm. I just wanted to wrestle. And then, you know, lo and behold, there were, there were people who were going to pay you to do it.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, no question, you're an, you're an old-school uh, guy with, uh, you know, with how you were trained. and yeah, and, I, and a lot of that carried along with you when you did become a trainer. What was what was Johnny Rods like? I mean, what was the kind of the philosophy? Because I don't think a lot of people understand uh, what those early days of professional wrestling were like. It was really uh, how bad do you want it, and they would stretch you, and uh, really the, the whole the whole idea was just to get rid of you, and if you still showed up, then they might consider training you.
0: Yeah, yeah, I and mean, I and mean, I, that that was the point was, well, let's just see. You know, okay. You heard about this this yeah. thing called professional wrestling. Well, let's just see how much you want it. And I, it wasn't to the point or the extent, like you know, Hogan tells the story how they snapped his leg the first day.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. Um. It wasn't to that point with with me because I uh, I still say I was probably bigger than everybody else in that school. Mm-hmm. But uh, Johnny Johnny went out of his way for that one-on-one time with me and knowing that you can, there's a difference between knowing you can like kick somebody's butt and knowing this guy's like giving you the business, trying to teach you something is two different things. But the thing that I always said about Johnny Rogers, he was trying to teach you the business more than just the physical. So if you, you know, and that became kind of, a lot of people say it became my trademarkers. If you can read between the lines of what I'm saying and what I'm doing then you're going to learn something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I became a, a Rod's student and much like and you'll hear Tommy Dreamer say the same thing and, and Dudley's and, and Taz has said it in the past as well. And But if you could just hang in there and pay attention to it and realize that you were being taught something, you weren't just being, you know, you weren't being punked. You know, once once you, you paid your, I guess, I don't know if you're allowed to use that term anymore, paid your dues and, you hung in there and and, and showed up every day, mm-hmm. ready to do it again, and that was the thing. It was Groundhog's Day. You took a, I mean, you took a beating as a as a grown man, and you had to decide if that's something you wanted to do, sore and bruised and, and, and you know beat up. And so I took that with me every everywhere I went was that that mindset of let's let's learn let's learn it first before we just keep asking for more.
1: Yeah. And, and, and describe a, a bit more of that training though you talk about you know the the bumps, of course, and the, the physical end of it. but we we talk about storytelling all the time and what and a lot of it's missing in some cases these days. But back then, how, how was that taught to you?
0: Well the, what Johnny Johnny himself and who's a great storyteller, he, he could mm-hmm. mesmerize you with his stories. the first time I think it started to make sense to me was, wrestling the invisible man mm-hmm. because he you know he, he, he trying to explain to you that this is the match you have to have so you're trying to learn you it's bad enough you're trying to learn how to bump and not you know get a concussion and, and become a crash test dummy and you're then you're hitting the ropes and then someone else is throwing you around mm-hmm. and just when you get a feel for that stuff now you've got to learn to tell a story with no one else in the ring right. and can you because and I and I say this uh, respectfully to anyone in the business, you can take anybody off the street and teach them how to bump in five minutes. Mm-hmm. But can you? But can can you add that to your craft and can you become a storyteller? So it was learning first of all breaking through your own personal um, mindset of I'm not going to look stupid by trying to wrestle something that's not there. Yeah. So you you know you wrestled the towel, you wrestled the broomstick, and then you wrestled the invisible man. Yeah. And until you did that stuff. Uh, you didn't have, one, you probably didn't have Johnny's attention where he believed in you, but two, you just didn't have uh, faith in what you were doing, you know, and then I think that's when you became very comfortable in what you were doing was, wow, I can have a halfway decent match and try to tell a story to a bunch of guys that are really looking at me to fail, Yeah, because most of the time it was in front of your peers that you were doing that. And then, you know, it, it built to that's where the 60 minutes came from and wrestling for an hour and and then learning all the terms and Broadway and all these other things. But Johnny taught us that stuff first before the terms and, and what they meant and when you would use them. It was that confidence of learn how to tell the story instead of just being a, a bump taker, instead of just being, a, you know, a, 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 a one-trick pony, let's say but I, I i don't know if i ever became a a i don't know if i ever lived up to that storytelling thing i had my moments where it was really good but i think i i found my niche when i when when they finally years later would say be yourself times 10 that's when it made sense to
1: me yeah and, and you mentioned the uh, you know these 60 minute matches these 30 minute matches the broadways and uh, it, it is definitely a lost art. I don't think you could do it today, part of it for the attention span and what, and how high that bar's been raised to, you know, continuous entertainment. But I remember, you know, matches back when I was with the WWF that, uh, you know, you could hold an arm bar for three minutes. These guys would know how to five minutes. They'd know how to do And the entire time, the, the crowd was riveted. And yeah. Do you do you think it, it's it's – just a lost art or you know what's the difference today that you you really can't do that I mean you, uh, there's very few uh, matches that you'll see that would ever I, get away yeah from that.
0: and I think that's it I think I think even the the best students of the game because there's a lot of young talent out there yeah. that are students of the game and 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 watch the old tapes and not just on the network they go and try to find you know old tapes um, to your point like to, to, we learned how to work a headlock, and that was the only yeah. offensive thing you had. Yeah. And you know, DiBiase was a master at it. Yeah. You know, so we we learned those things. And I, and I think the, the the and I say kids, respectively, the kids today who are in this business and making loads of money, I don't think they're afraid to do it. I just think they know they're not going to get a get the opportunity to spend three three minutes on a decent hold. So I think it's just. It's it's just a lost art, and they, they don't have the time to, you know, to apply it. So I think it's just kind of like one of those things. The the evolution of the business is it really is a lost art. But I'm a huge fan of boy one body part. I'm, I mean that's how you learned. Yeah, and you, you kept and then how many how many different ways can you can you work that body part? And so I think it's a lot. Of, I think it's a mixture of what you were saying. A lot of a lot of guys and 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 the girls know they don't have the time uh, so they don't don't apply that kind of thing to the business anymore
1: well and especially with you know the the product that the the WWE or and some of these bigger organizations have but you know somebody like Joey Janella who does, still he does the invisible man matches and I've watched a couple of them and I I you know I don't know if you could really get away with it with something maybe the WWE would ever feature something like that but it was just fascinating to watch because you know, after a while, like, the crowd is into it. You know, and he does, like, where he throws a guy you know, or the invisible man, and then the crowd reacts, and the chair, they go over in their chairs. And uh, it it really is the the true storytelling. I mean, it's up to you. You've got to create uh, in the minds of everybody what's happening in that match. And I, I, I mean, I'm i just fascinated. Maybe it was just because it was something really different to watch. But at the same time, if you appreciate the art—it's—it's it's really uh, not many people can pull it off. That's for sure. Right,
0: right. And 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 if he can get the people that invested in it, yeah. you know, it, it turns out to be—they leave with that's what they were talking about of all the things they saw. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's a it's it's a lost art, and it's it's fun to say it sometimes. Uh, okay, go get me a towel, and you'd hear uh, you'd hear a, a whole room of people groaning, but you hear that one person going, "I want to do it. I want to learn how to do it." yeah you know give give me the towel give me the broomstick so it's uh i think it'd be it'd be so cool to see some of that come back with everything else that's coming back and going on it'd be so great you
1: know i'd love to see it it would it would really and and, you know they may it may start a whole different you know movement with this but anyway getting, getting back to your journey though um when did it really start to happen for you? I, I you know I always love to hear uh, because it it really takes a lot in the in the very beginning to stick with it. You might get some shots, but you're not making any money. You're you're driving all over the place, uh, basically maybe gas money and uh, you know maybe a meal a day. Uh, right. So what were those early days like for you before you you I guess say you got the the break that really. You know, I guess at some point you say, "Yeah, I'm a professional wrestler."
0: Well, we we were going, and and the thing with with Johnny and and that and back in the you know, I started in '88, and that yeah. Northeast area was red hot independent wise, and you had all the guys that were working together, and the WWF guys were making the loops on their off days up there as well. Mm-hmm. So, oh, I, I wasn't, I wasn't. Uh, I'm going to say smart enough to understand I wasn't making a great deal of money. I just like hey for twenty bucks I got to go to Boston, which was a ridiculous ride there and back,
1: right?
0: You know, and and if you're lucky, to your point, you had gas money and you you know, and and you got home because you had to get home that same night because you had to get up for work the next day. Yeah, but I got to but I got to wrestle, and that was the thing that hooked me. Every time it wasn't like. I, I, I guess the the old Bill would say to the young Bill, man, you were stupid. But the young Bill was getting to wrestle. Mm-hmm. So the twenty bucks was while I knew it wasn't while it wasn't worth it financially, and I wasn't going to become a uh, a superstar and rich. I got to wrestle, and the uh, the other thing for me was I I had opportunities. Like, it, it came kind of quick for me because before I knew it, I, you know, I was doing the independent things just through Johnny Rods, you know, just through the school and do the shows that John was booked on. But then someone else would, you know, because it's six, two, three hundred and something pounds. And I moved pretty good back then. Mm-hmm. And they were like, and I could, and you know, that my thing was I could bump. So for a big guy who could bump and then get up and do it again for someone and not, you know, complain about it. I started to get opportunities, so then I went on my first trip to Europe way before I was ready, but I had an opportunity, so I took the opportunity. Europe turned into um, coming back and doing some Pennsylvania stuff and doing some other things, and, and it, it put me in Puerto Rico by ninety one. So for the two, two years or so that I was close to home, um, I was well aware I wasn't going to become rich or famous, but I was getting to, to apply the stuff I was doing, and and that's kind of that's kind of the way I approached my whole career. Was I'm am I'm gonna wrestle, and then if you're if you're gonna pay me to do it, you just
1: have to figure out that part of the business. You know what I mean? Yeah. So when but I was the- I was I
0: always say I was I was fortunate, and I was I, I had the I was in the right place at the right time.
1: So when you got the opportunity to go to Japan, uh, and, and what, how did that come about? And then, how did that change you as a professional wrestler uh, going there?
0: Well, I, I for, Japan came from Puerto Rico. Um, I went down. Uh, Hercules Ayala had come to Brooklyn with uh, to visit Johnny, and he was looking for a couple of guys. To, uh, they were trying to run opposition to Carlos Colon back then.
1: Um,
0: so they came and they saw. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Mondo Clean, who later became Damien Demento, <clears throat> and myself as a tag team. So they booked us to go to Puerto Rico. Well, I got on the plane to go to Puerto Rico, but but uh, Mondo got on the plane and came to Florida. So he went to work for Eddie Mansfield, and I showed up to Puerto Rico by myself. Now, I'm greener than, you know, I always say I was greener than goose shit. And so I got off the plane, and they said, where's your partner? I said, well, I don't know. And They said, "Well, okay." So we were supposed to be there for two weeks, shooting TV. I left Japan two and a half, almost three years later. Wow! <laughs> because it, they were paying me yeah. to wrestle, and they put me up in a you know at the time they they paid for the condo we lived in, and I got to and I got to learn a different style now because back then Puerto Rico was pretty close to Japan and it was physical and it was, the storytelling was different and the fans were different. And I just, I, I found a home in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but when it was, when you realize that you were there for almost three years and your home life kind of goes, you know, cattywampus. Yeah. I said, okay, I'm coming home. You know, you, you, yeah. you almost forget. Uh, so I, I, came home to New Jersey and literally that same week I, I came home, I got an offer to go to Japan, and I packed my bags and left.
1: Yeah. So you're going to be even and further it, from home.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, then, then you were going, so it was, uh, so my, the schedule became three to five weeks in Japan, yeah. which then turned into three weeks in Mexico, which turned into one week at home. And that was my schedule for the next three years. Wow. And But I fell in love with the business in Mexico. Because uh, I I found out there were things I could do as a big man that nobody else had seen before, with the flipping and the flying yeah. and, and all the athleticism, and yeah. then <clears throat> realizing which ones worked in Japan and which ones didn't, um, and it just turned into being seen by Sullivan, and you know after three years of Japan and Mexico, having the opportunity to go to WCW, and I was just. Always in the
1: right place at the right time. Yeah, well, it, it certainly sounds that way. Uh, so, I mean, you, you said, you know, in a, a short period of time, a lot happened. I mean, you from being completely green, showing up and, and then, uh, you know, talk about an education. I mean, it wasn't like you were just you know beating the roads in, in the United States going to these territories. Uh, you, you go from, uh, you know, c- completely different countries, completely different styles, very different crowds, what did you learn during that time? I mean, it's just about, we talked about storytelling, but working and working a crowd. It's,
0: well, it's almost everything, the story remains the same, but it's it's much like when, you know, as, you're, and as you learned and what they were trying to teach me is how to modulate and when you were, you know, commentating and your expression and how you tell the story with your voice is the same thing in, in Mexico and in Japan, where Japan was so much more physical, you couldn't just take a bump for the sake of taking a bump. You had to be knocked down. Mm. You had to tell the story that you were six foot two, 350 pounds, and you were about to rip somebody's head off. But the, in Japan, they sat on their hands until something spectacular happened. But then you had them, and you had to understand that. Whereas in Mexico, the more wackadoo things you did, and the more you could keep getting up and doing it was what what they bought into. So how do I tell that same story in a match that I just had that was great in Mexico? But how do I turn that over and try to tell the same story with the same Mexican guy now in Japan? Because they're not going to buy my style in Japan of what I did in Mexico. So it was the if that makes sense. So it was yeah. trying to figure figure out who I was, where I was. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing, the big circle to that whole conversation is I I finally had figured it out. And, and then I was uh, fortunate enough to, to jump into some Smoky Mountain stuff when we were home. And yeah. uh, the beginning of ECW back with, with Eddie Gilbert, right as Paul was taking over. And in between those trips, I would still get booked. And as and soon as I joined WCW, after all the things I'd learned, I was told I was a punch kick guy. <laughs> So I went full circle, oh, hey. and I had all this bag of tricks, yeah. and I was so excited, and I was gonna, I was gonna be the guy, and wait till they see what I can do. And hey, by the way, none of that stuff. Yeah. You're, you're a punch kicker. You're guy. a brawler. Yeah. Yeah, I went okay.
1: Well, did you break it out once in a while, or you did was it pretty much? Oh a,
0: yeah, absolutely. A, a, well, yeah. Uh, you know the funny part with the first the first couple of matches I had for Saturday night. TVs, and there was no moonsault, and there was no anything off the top rope, and they pulled me aside and goes, where's the stuff? I said, you you said I was a punch kicker, because I don't care what I told you, at the end, you land on someone like that, and I (laughs) said, oh, okay, so eventually, I got to, every once in a while, I got to pull up, but then the moonsault was the mainstay, and, you know, some other things, but uh, it was, was, what an education, traveling traveling the world back then, and, and, and learning it, and and, and and just picking it up, it, and to me, that's what it was. It was the you you had to want to do that. You had to want to try that instead of just saying, "Okay, I went to Japan once. I was in Mexico once. Like I lived there, and and I, I uh, you know, I I lived and breathed that work ethic, and you just had to want to do it, and hopefully everything else followed. The, the you know the money or the, the you know more bookings. But like and and I always go back to say I've always said it, and always will. I was just I was just fortunate.
1: Yeah, uh and you, and got a lot of opportunities. Um Bill, a lot of people don't know uh, back then and even I didn't really understand how it worked uh, being even around it. How talent was found back then. Now to now these days you know they have a very established what we'd call I guess a minor league. I mean, they bring guys right. in and they they groom them from the beginning. But back right. then it was a very different story. Uh so, from your viewpoint back then, and, and uh, a lot of people don't don't know how that worked. Uh, how was it done? How did you end up? Because that, that was the place to be, no matter how you know when anybody wanted to tell you that you wanted to go to the WWE. Uh, but how did it happen to people? How did I mean? What was that road? I mean, I mean it, it first back
0: then it was, and back back in that time, from my understanding, it was you had to have that that look. Yeah. Uh, you just had to look like you, not only have you been in a fight, but you owned the fight, started the fight, ended the fight, and wanted to fight again. Yeah. But you had to have a, a, a certain size to you because, and, you know, in the early years, as, as you well know, it was, a, it, was a, it was a business of big men.
1: Yeah, Vince liked them. So,
0: you know, people, people would see you and go, okay, you can do this. And, and I was probably persuaded by more people not to get involved with wrestling. Than I was persuaded to to you know try it, right. um, because they'd say, hey, man, once you go in there, you're just you're just a bumper, you're just a you know you're just going to bump for everybody. And That was my first experience was um, when Johnny sent us one time uh, Mondo Clean and I. He sent us to Connecticut to to a show, and we had no business going, but it was just Johnny putting us in front of people. And uh, Jay Strongbow told me that. If I had black trunks, you know, he'd let his kid beat me up for a couple of minutes, but I'd never see, I'd never see a minute of TV because they had, you know, at that time they had the Road Warriors and they had all the head head shrinkers and all these monster guys. So for me, it was Bigelow, and, and Bigelow was my go-to ask questions because to me, he was the ultimate big man back then.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and he was very so, agile, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah.
0: So you know, it was you had to have that look. And then it wouldn't hurt if you had a bit of a reputation, mm-hmm. you know, but no matter what that reputation is, whether you're reliable or whether, you know, you're safe and things like that. But if you were a big man and you were safe, then people wanted to at least work with you or at least, you know, maybe open a door for you and say, okay, maybe come to the show. You'd be, you know, you'd be an extra or, or something like that. Um, but yeah. to me that's how you were found in bars and uh, you know i was like like the typical story i mean i was a bouncer i was working in three different bars and the guys would come into town and when they came in you make sure they had a seat and nobody hassled them and if they got hassled you know you, you did a number on the guy that was hassling them and they went hey who's this kid you mm-hmm. know so they started to they started to recognize and go hey kid you know what try this
1: uh, but but one of the tough ways in and and uh and this is when we used to do the TV tapings. And, of course, they were all these squash squash matches where we would yeah. have, they'd pick up local enhancement guys that would just come in. I don't even know what they paid them. But they would just basically go out, go out there to get just the living daylight speed out of them because it was there yeah. to put the, the superstars over. But there were certain levels of enhancement guys. You know, you had the guys that just showed up who probably from a school. And they'd go out there and, you know, do a couple of bumps and let's get destroyed. But then you had other guys that they knew who could work. And, right. and, and you could, you you know, some did make it in that way, but, you know, a lot of people don't, don't realize there wasn't, you know, there were there were, you know, schools, there were uh, some organizations, they, I remember they used to have boxes of, of tapes and there really wasn't, uh, you know, I guess you could call it a network, but it wasn't much. It was like how somebody, you know, one of the other uh, guys that had worked uh, with yep. the organization would say, you ought to take a look at this guy. And that's how it kind of happened for people
0: yeah and the chalkboard uh, the, the I, I was up I was actually up there two times one time I was brought in by Jerry Jarrett mm-hmm. and then uh, another time they actually called me directly but the chalkboard at the time they had it and in the gorilla position had 60 matches on it and your name kept getting erased and put to the bottom of the list yeah. and erased in fact <laughs> and then you sat there for 12 13 hours yeah And then you never got there and they said, well, come back tomorrow. And you come back tomorrow and your name kept getting pushed down to the bottom, pushed down to the bottom. But, but you're right. There's certain guys who were spoken for who were given an opportunity to kind of show what they could do. Yeah. And then there were the local guys in every, every area who went in there for, you know, for 50 bucks and and took a, took a beating.
1: Yeah.
0: And it's, I don't think people really appreciated what, what went into that. And I, you know, I, I was thankful that I was busy enough and, and didn't really get, I never got that kind of treatment, but I, I saw it. I never, I'm just going to say, I never, I never agreed with it. So when I, when I had the opportunity, when guys came in and, you know, I was on the other side of it, I wanted to make sure like, Hey, you know, everybody's good and it's going to be like this. And, but the business was changing then too, but there, yeah, it wasn't like you just, Hey, this guy, this, you, you had to go and, I mean, there were guys driving 600 miles each way to get yeah. on that TV thing to get beat up.
1: Yeah, and like you said, they would come and, and you might not get a, a, a whisper that day. They would just, right. they would, and I, I used to, uh, I felt bad for these guys that would come, but they just wanted a shot yep. uh, to get in there and try and, you know, show what they could do. The, the you had the guy, you know, you had guys like Mike Sharp and, you know, some yeah. of these other workers who they would use to actually help launch careers. And that was a, a total art to that too, but uh, right. The the, the journey. Hey, those men, were the
0: guys. Those were the guys I got to. I got to uh, play with was S. D. Jones and Mike Sharp and yeah. and and Jose Luis Rivera yeah. and guys like that. You know, and once they once they knew they could trust you, then they gave you their knowledge because those guys were the journeymen that yeah. made everybody else look good. Yeah. So they were great. I, to, to me, they were great storytellers they were they, they understood what was needed in inside the ring and what guys were looking for so I spent a lot of time you know just trying to listen to, to things like that
1: yeah so what was the experience with with the WCW now I think this was uh, like mid 90s or uh, and, and it was yeah. you know the wars were it was you know starting to you know go but what was that experience like for you
0: I got there in 95 yeah um, and it's right. Always the funniest part of my 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 story with WC. I'm known for two things in WCW. Yeah. I'm known for being Goldberg's first match. Right. And then I'm known for being the guy they hired because they fired Vader. Yeah. And it was it was just a, a Sunday night phone call from Sullivan. He said, "Are you still fat? And are you still wrestling?" And I answered yes to both. And they put me on a plane to Macon, Georgia. <laughs> uh- uh, so I, I started in '95 with WCW, and went the rest of the way with them until uh, until they closed. Um, but again, it was it was a whole different education. So I'm, um, you know, I I had the pleasure of writing and working with Ray Trailer, you know, the Boss Man and and One Man Gang and Ming and and these guys and getting in with fortunate enough to get on the to get on the you know, where Hogan and Savage and Sting and those guys knew I was safe, so I got to work with them on live events, you know, and 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 just keep learning. But, yeah, I, I got there in 95, and it was a trip, man. I never thought it was – I thought Japan was the best thing I'd ever done. So when WCW, I'm like, well, it's TV, but, you know, up north it wasn't as big yet. Um, but, it, yeah, I, I started in 95, and it was just a great – a great ride
1: and when you are when you were involved in that and you know you can go down the list there's guys I know you could tell me about that just had everything and for some reason it doesn't happen uh, yeah was there a point where you were just uh, you know I'm just going to ride this and if they whatever they want me to do I, I mean I just want to uh, be a part of this
0: uh, yeah when I started <clears throat> excuse me when I started that's all it was was let me see what they want yeah let let me see like let me get feel the temperature of the room so seeing the talent and you know uh all the guys that were still there Pillman and you know up and down the line and the guys that now were coming over from Mexico and and guys that were coming from ECW and so was, now I'm in there the same time as Jericho's coming in as Guerrero and Benoit and Mysterio and and all these guys that I've known from outside of WCW mhm so now I'm coming and go, okay, now I found a, a bit of a comfort zone. So after a couple of years, I kind of knew what they wanted, and then, then I started to, you know, try to experiment with things, and maybe we'll do this or we'll do that. And I just, I you know, I, I still and I look at it now, and I still was under the thing of, man, they're, they're paying me to wrestle, so why would I ruffle feathers, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, so, and and people they think of that era, I mean of course they think of NWO and and you know, Hulk and Savage and right. you know, these big names, but they had a, a, a roster and uh how did that I don't mean I mean you all wanted to be on television. How did that uh that whole booking process work? I mean of course you had these guys I, massing them on top and that's the way it was gonna be, but what about the rest of you?
0: I didn't even know there was a booking system. Yeah. Until you started hearing everybody complain about it, yeah,
1: that's right.
0: because I was, I was, I was, and and I'd say this, I say this very naively, and I say this very honestly. I was working all the time, mm-hmm. so I didn't, I didn't realize. All I heard was the mumblings of guys who were complaining. So when you didn't see them on the road, you just figured they complained themselves out of a position, yeah, or they didn't want to be on the road. But I saw the same group all the time, yeah. So there, was a, there was a group of guys all the time, and then you had, you know, at the time you had Lex who would only work 40-something days, or this one wanted two weeks off, and you knew what you had with Hall and Nash and, and the NWO stuff, and you knew what you had with Sting and Savage and Flair and, and you know, all that. But then, then that next year, I was always working. Mm-hmm. So I chose not to fall into that... Uh, I want more, or I want what he's got, or things like that. I, I feel like I tried to work myself into position instead of asking for 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 a better position. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I liken it to uh, you know, like say a major league baseball team. Now you've got guys that are going to be your you know your superstars, but at the same time, it's you know you got to look around once in a while and say, you know what, I'm playing major league baseball, or I am I am I'm. I'm <laughs> With one of the you know the two best organization wrestling organizations that exist in the world today, right? So it, it sounds like you were at you were able to appreciate it at that time.
0: Yeah, I didn't want I didn't want a day off. I didn't want to. I was I've, i and I'm still fascinated with it because I I miss it a lot now that you know I'm I'm kind of done with everything. But yeah. I just wanted to to wrestle. I I was seeing the world. I was meeting people. When I got to be physical and, and be be in that ring for that 20 minutes a night and do the things that I got to do, i was I was grateful for that and I know a lot of the guys were grateful for it and they just wanted to be you know compensated for it and you know whoever everybody's story is different. Mm-hmm. Mine was just simple. Yeah, where's the next town? What are we doing and, and how much fun am I having? You know, and I I say I lived like a rock star, in in my opinion. I got to do what I love to do. They were paying me very well to do it. So I had no problems. As long as those two things were happening, I was working and they were paying me. I didn't have, you know, I'm not uh, one of these guys who believed he deserved, you know, $4 million a year. I was pretty, pretty, had my feet pretty much to the ground on what level I was at. So I just I just enjoyed it, and all the guys were so miserable at the time when they were trying to fight for position. I didn't want to be around it. I I wanted to be around the happy-go-lucky, chucklehead guys.
1: Yeah, and um, you know uh, when that all was going on, um, you know, and these opportunities that people would have died for at that time—that was uh, you know the place to be. Um, When when it started to, I don't know, go downhill. Was it was it. Fast or gradual? Like, do we? Did you kind of like see? Okay, the plane starting land here.
0: <laughs> well, it, it started with just mumblings. Yeah. You know, at one time I I forget how the order exactly went, but AOL had come in or Coke had come in, one or the other, and then mm-hmm. so you met a new lawyer, and there was a little bit of mumblings, and you know, but everybody who came in made sure to tell you they weren't a fan of the product. Oh, great. So. Why are they here? Yeah. And then, and then there, after a while, as you know, it, it, Sullivan was the boss, and then next week, Bischoff was the boss, and then next week, Russo was the boss, but then Bischoff was back, and Russo was out, but wait a minute, Sullivan's back, and this one's back. And so, as that started to unravel and change, that's when you knew, okay, you know, what do I need to do? Who do I need to call? What are my best options? Am I going to continue in wrestling or. Or, you know, seek a job, or am I going to call... It? My my whole goal was to see if I could get back to Japan. That was, that was the only thing on my mind, mm-hmm. was to see if I could go back to Japan. But you saw it. <clears throat> I think everybody who was paying attention, you saw it. It started very slowly, in my opinion. And it was just mumblings. But when it started to unravel, you saw it was like rats trying to get off a ship.
1: So were you able to n- navigate all those... Uh you know the people that were running the show between, you know, between Eric and, and Kevin. And I, I'm sure that that was fine. But then, you know, when you had other people in there. Were you just able to just kind of, you know, stay on the ship? Yeah. Or were I there just, times where you just knew that that uh, we don't? This guy doesn't like me. He doesn't. Want
0: me. There was only one time, and it was uh, I forget the year. It was the beginning of a year, and we were in we were in the. Uh, in the Dome in Atlanta, and it was in January, <clears throat> and it was a Nitro, and I just beat Glacier on live on live TV, and then I went back and quit, because I didn't want to be I didn't want to be around it anymore. So my contract was up, no one had talked to me, um, I wasn't in the mix of the top, the top guys, and I told Jimmy Hart I was leaving, I told the company I was leaving, that was the only time I was very frustrated with okay I've been here for four years now I'd like to talk to you about another opportunity like a, a way to move up both financially and, and on the roster and I was treated like listen dude you should be happy to be here mm-hmm. and that's when I that's the first time I felt like I wasn't I wasn't being appreciated as much as I appreciated being there you know what I mean yeah uh, that was the only time um, but it turns out I you know I we had this big meeting. It, it, all, I resigned and, and things, things were happening. And would you know, as I resigned and, and things were starting to pick up for me is that's when, that's when the sale was coming. Yeah. So it was, uh, you know, that was the only time I was ready to leave, but I wasn't ready to leave because of the ship sinking. I was ready to leave because I wasn't, I didn't feel like after four years, I felt like I started to prove myself a little bit and, and, you know, wanted to be reassured that at least everybody was paying attention to that.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, um, so- but- shortly after you did make that trip to the WWE and, and, uh, were there other opportunities before that with them? It,
0: um, I had one other opportunity. Um, and that was the time Jerry Jarrett had brought me up. Right. Um, and I came in the same weekend as Duke, the dumpster Drosie. Uh-huh. So we had the same weekends together, uh, the same three, same three live events. I had, uh, I had good good matches, um, good good rapport with a lot of the guys in the back, um, and it just turns out that after the third after the third day or something, Jerry had left the WWF. Like literally, as my weekend ended, his his time ended in WWF, yeah, yeah. and they hired uh, Josie. Yeah. So I just figured, that, okay, that then that wasn't my time, and that was so that was my only time I had previous before they before they bought the company
1: Yeah. so how did the time uh, how did it happen in in 2001 uh,
0: in, in overnight I got Re- home really I got home from Panama City and like I said uh, a lot of it was a lot of people uh, shocked and worried and upset and lost it you know and rightfully so a lot of a lot of good production people were losing their jobs a lot of people were going to lose their jobs yeah um, and a lot of guys had the well, I just burned myself there because you know they whatever whatever business they had had with Vince previous to WCW, or and there was guys making crazy, crazy money.
1: Yeah, still so, being paid too.
0: Yes, yeah, still yeah. be 100 percent guaranteed contracts. Yeah. So a lot of those guys looked at as do whatever you want. I'm still getting paid. Yeah, me, I was like, I wonder if I can get Japan. Like, how long it's going to take me to get back there? Um, went home the next day and got a call, a phone call from John Laurinaitis that, uh, Jim Ross wanted to meet me. And, uh, I forget if it was a week or so, Jim Ross was down in Tampa and I drove, drove to Tampa to meet JR and he said, we'd love to have you. And I said, well, where, when, when, when do I start? And, uh, so it was, again, it was just, I don't, I don't, I will never say, Man, I'm so good. They needed me. I'm just saying, I was just in the right place. And contrary to what a lot of people may think, my reputation for being who I am is what got me the job in WWF. Mm. And, and that's the way I. That's the way I look at it. Was because the people who know me and who have dealt with me and understand the business knew I was all about the business and. And, and just doing what was best for business. So I, I, you know, I was just one of the fortunate ones that uh, got the call. And they, you know, the, de- the next day after Panama City, by the time I got home, I got a phone call and said, you have a job. And I went, mm-hmm. okay, great.
1: So you mentioned that reputation. What, what do you think it was then?
0: I don't think you'll find anyone. Uh, I don't think you'll find anyone who ever said I, I, I would hurt anybody in the ring would intentionally mess somebody up in the ring, would disrespect anybody in and out of the ring. I was just, you. what you wanted to do as an opponent or an agent or a producer, the answer was always yes to the best of my ability. I always gave everybody 100%, and I honestly cared about what we were doing in the ring. No matter who my opponent was, and people knew me for who I was the people that actually lived on the road with me for 300 days a year, you know, knew, knew Bill DeMott and what, what I believed in as far as the business and and how I handled myself in the business. And, uh, I'm that's why I say I'm grateful that, you know, I've, I've always been in the right place. And, and if you don't deal dirt, dirt doesn't get dealt to you, you know, uh, I'm not a karma guy. I just believe that if you treat people the way you want to be treated, that's what's going to happen. So I, I chalk up my, I chalk up 28 years very successfully and I'm just not an internet darling. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, you know, the, uh, the the term became very popular, this, you know, hardcore. Uh, but that had existed for a long time and of course, the you know, yeah. UCW made it popular. But, you know, you talk to, Tag teams like uh, you know the nasty boys or the steiners and man, when they went out there man they were they were they were uh, they were delivering and um, and yeah. they expected it uh you know legion of doom was like that too uh, the road warriors um, yeah and, and so that is kind of who you were right i mean you went in there and and expect that's just the way you worked
0: yeah bring it and and mm-hmm. i'll bring it too and and we know the level Certain guys liked it, you know, really, really snug. Yeah. Uh, Rick Steiner was one of those guys, but he expected to get it back the same way. Um, but I, I found it was the guys that were that were that had been traveling and been worked in Japan and those places that understood that, because there were certain guys who didn't, <coughs> like Randy Savage, who I had, I loved working with, mm-hmm. never wanted to get hit, mm-hmm. like please don't kill me, brother, you know, and. So you knew, you knew your. If you were smart, you knew how much to give them and how 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 much to lay it in, and and then you had you know, hopefully you could work, you know.
1: Yeah, well, those guys would tell you. I mean, uh, uh, you know, Joe Laurinaitis would say, you know, if you don't if you don't deliver, if you don't you know lay it in, I ain't selling it. And, and that's the greatest line it. ever. Yeah. Then I ain't selling it. But then you had other guys that, you know, they were worried about having an injury, which I mean, I can understand. They got, they want to be able to show up every night. But that's the way guys like to work. So I think that uh, when we get into, you know, talking about when you made that transition uh, to a trainer, that's, that, it seems to me that's just the way everybody knew who you were coming in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And if you could do it, if you were good at it and did it safely, you could, you know, you could knock a guy in the chops every night and not tear all his teeth out of his mouth, you know. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it, and it was a different time then, too. I, yeah. I got a chance to work with the, the big, <clears throat> excuse me, the big rough, the big rough guys who were probably the nicest guys in the in the world outside the ring.
1: Yeah, well, they came from a different world for, you know, a lot of these yes, people. That's yes, they just did. That's the way they they, the way they learned, they were taught yeah. and that's, and that's the way they liked it. I mean, they certainly, yeah. uh, so you, you have that run, but, um, you had a, a, a motorcycle accident. How, how devastating was that? I don't know how badly you were injured, but
0: it, it wasn't. It's so funny, Sean, because that, that was one time. And what had happened was I was coming. I, at the time I had a driveway It was about 300 feet off the, off the street. Mm-hmm. And it, a car came out of nowhere, so brakes hit, boom, and I went flying. The bike went skidding, and all that stuff. And it was the one time I showed up to work, just looked like I got beat up. Yeah. And the, the agent at the time was Jack Lanza, uh-huh. and he goes, "What the hell happened to you?" And I said, "I got in a bike thing." So all of a sudden, it made the report that I was in a motorcycle accident, and you know we should take him off and send him home. And I had to fight to stay on the stay on the loop. Uh-huh. I said, I can go. It's just bumps and bruises and scratches. But it turned into, it, that's one of the times where it turned into, you know, Bill DeMott motorcycle accident, da 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 uh-huh. And it really, you know, it was a couple hundred dollars on the bike and a couple weeks of, you know, road rash for me. But uh, that was one of the times I actually showed up for work and had to beg to stay stay on the, the loop because, you know, when you write something in an email or something, say, hey, DeMott's here and he was in a bike crash.
1: Yeah.
0: That's all everybody wanted to hear.
1: Well, also the timing of it, uh, you know, in your that sure. a lot of people thought, well, that's that must have been what it was that, that you know, that
0: forced you know, them so out was, of the ring. It was so, it was so that's funny. It. I was like, geez, so that, from then on, you never, you know, you wouldn't even tell anybody you had a, a cough because you were afraid holy <laughs> crap. Yeah,
1: you're going to be in the report. No, you can't go out there. Right,
0: don't. right. That was it. So I learned really quick. I don't want to be in any agent reports no matter what. Yeah.
1: But but shortly after that, I mean, you you do start training um, wrestlers, and was this something along the way? You said, you know, I I think I could do this, or you know, how did how did it get to that point where uh, that became your next next step in your career?
0: Well, I, I had um, the difference in WWF and WWE <clears throat> was the ring was set up, and you were enticed and you were allowed to get in the ring before before TVs and before live events mm-hmm. whereas WCW guy just you know just laid back it was just a different work ethic well when I got to WWF and you see you know undertaker or somebody in the ring sitting there warming up well let me let me go bounce around with this guy uh-huh. a guy I've never been with and so when people would get to the ring I'd, I'd go right to the ring I wanted to work out I wanted to Show somebody what I could do and see what they could do. And it gave me a chance to mess with guys I didn't know. So even if we never worked together, I got to work with them, you know, pre pre shows and stuff. And it caught people's eye that I was always in the ring every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had an opportunity uh, shortly after to join the Tough Enough uh, reality show.
1: Right.
0: Um, and they, they approached me and said if it was something I'd be interested in. And, and I asked them why. And they said, well, because you're always training. You're always helping the younger guys. You're always, I said, absolutely. So um, Tough Enough allowed me to show the company a different side of me as well because that's uh, – I, I said it's from the midnight I trained with Johnny. I was obsessed with – everybody should know what I know. Everybody should try these things and everybody should, you know. I just felt like I was taught the right way and I wanted to help someone else have that same experience. So – I had the tough enough, um, which helped me on TV. After the show was over, and my character got stronger, and and uh, all these things. And uh, long story short, in two thousand, towards the end of two thousand three, I broke my neck. Uh, I, I, I cracked three, four, and five in my neck, and um, pretty much lost the use of my right side. Mm. But instantly, the company and hold on your seat because I'm one of those guys who's always going to tell you the positive stuff about this company
1: mm-hmm.
0: is that the company instantly said, we'd love for you to commentate. Have you ever thought about it? <laughs> and I, I said, well, no, I never, I never thought about it. And they said, we just think, you know, Kevin Dunn told me he wanted to make me the Howie Long of WWE mm-hmm. commentating, mm-hmm. you know, so they, they did to they cut my hair and they gave me an opportunity on velocity Um, just as young Josh was starting and I got to work with Cole and Taz was there doing, doing Ron and, and all those things. And I got to do some pay-per-view stuff. And in between that, they said, Hey, uh, would you like to go to Louisville and work out with some of these young kids we got and see what they got? Yeah, I'd love it. Mm -hmm. So I was, I, I got to stay with the company after the physical stuff was over for me in ring as commentating and then I still had two more tough enoughs I did in between then. And then I started to go to the, to the different, to the different training areas. And at the time it was just Louisville and, um, Cincinnati. I think Memphis is already closed by that time. So I, I was making trips all the time and I was just as busy. And that's, that's my passion is to share that. And, uh, I fell in love with it. So. Uh, they took Al Snow off of, I think he was, Al was doing Heat and I was doing Velocity and they came to Al and I and, and Al was going to go to Louisville and I was going to open up uh, Deep South in Atlanta and it just, just another opportunity, but I loved training and putting together a system that worked and and how to work it out and, you know.
1: Was that kind of kind of your philosophy, though, all the time? I mean, that you were described as like you were a, a, a drill sergeant, and and like with tough enough, uh, that worked really well because here you had guys that, uh, for the most part, were pretty green, and right, they needed that, and also you needed to see were they tough enough.
0: Yeah, and I think it was a tough enough was a was a blessing and a curse hmm. because what a lot of people didn't understand was. It was it was bill but it was times 10 because it was TV
1: yeah
0: so you had to bring that so when people who never met me before had al- already had that drill sergeant expectations and came in with that fear and you know had spent two weeks with me and all of a sudden you know it's been the worst thing they've ever been through in their whole life yeah. they they didn't accept the experience they were worried about the guy they'd seen on TV you know does that make sense yeah so it was, it was a blessing and a like uh, I made my reputation from it, but that reputation has, has worked against me, too. But it's still the same mentality to your question of, let's work hard. Let's let's work, like, I'm getting paid to help you, and guess what? You're getting paid to learn. This is a win-win a- across the board. And it just, you found out who wanted to be there and who, who wanted to go through it, and and it was, uh, I think, you know, reputations are, are, are a tricky thing. But that's that was my work ethic was, let's work hard if we're here for... for and at the time back then, they were there for three hours.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Let's sweat for three hours. Let's work hard because you get to come back and do it again tomorrow.
1: Yeah, but with with a, a case, like I said, with Tough Enough, that maybe that philosophy... It's going kind to of reminds me of like the, the the college coach, the, the the old school college coach that just right. you know just beat the hell out of the players and you know full contact uh, during practices and and uh, looking back through training some of those guys and you know there's there, you're a controversial figure with a lot of these guys and it's all over you know there's stories on the internet of how right. you train them. But do you look back and say that maybe with the, that level of talent who who claimed, you know, like, they'd been there, done that, they just wanted to learn, how do I prepare to be with the WWE? But did you see it a different way? Because people don't realize, sure, you know, uh, Kenny is a gigantic star now, but then where was he? You know, where were these guys yeah. at that point in their careers to, uh, you know, were they, you know, capable? At that time,
0: and I'm a huge, I'm a huge Kenny Omega fan. Mm-hmm. I was a huge Kenny Omega fan when he came to Atlanta, mm-hmm. um, but he's as as everybody's gotten to know him now over the over the years because of his ability and, and what he's done in the business. He's a free spirit, mm-hmm. and what the hardest thing for him, in my opinion, was being told, "Don't be such a free spirit. Let's focus on the business part of this." And that will come later, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. so I think I think, especially in his case, because he's so creative, that he took it as he was being handcuffed to it. Mm-hmm. I never had and never will have a bad word for Omega. I'm a fan of of everything he's done, and I said fifteen years ago he was the next Chris jericho mm-hmm. so i I found that I found that the guys that stick with it um hopefully. As they look past their time. with, And Kenny and I, we didn't have a lot of time together either. So I think, and he was surrounded by a couple guys that were just, lack of a better term, just miserable. And he just was, with that, that was his clique of guys. But there was a lot of guys who went through it. Miz and Ryback and, and Gallows and... Uh, Ryder and, you know, all these guys, and, and they'll be the first to say, and I'll be the first to agree with them, you know, the Ascension. Yes, there, there are days when I'm not the guy you you want to just get riled up. Let's just go to work and work, and that's the end of it. But it becomes, I think the thing that happened in developmental became very complacent, mm-hmm. and and previous coaches were their friends, and buddies, and got to talk about wrestling instead of working on wrestling, and I just was never that guy. Yeah. Uh, I understood my job. Well, I liked them all. It, it, there's a difference between being friends and being friendly. Yeah. And I like being friendly, and I'd like to think I gave everybody the same the the same uh, opportunity, but I always found it was the people who never stayed in the business that were the most miserable or, or or had something to say because the most successful guys and girls that came through it, the Bellas, the Kelly Kelly's, the uh, Fox and, and all these people. While I'm sure everybody has a time and place where they can remember, man, I hated that guy that day, but I, I'd like to think they all knew that at the end of the day, I was there for them and happy for them. And when I get to hear from them now and, we laugh about things like that or or you know, Ryback who who I think the world of sent me a message three years after he was called up and said, I got it. It makes sense. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I always I hold on to that stuff and absolutely drill sergeant mentality, yes. Do I do I not like people? No. I'm I'm probably probably you'll never you'll never hear how many times people came to my office or or to my house in tears with family problems, or needed to go home, or couldn't pay their bills and needed help financially, and and you know it's part for the course. Every head coach I think goes through that, and you just you just got to take it. But uh, I yeah. love I love it. I love it till this day. When I go do seminars, I go in with the same mentality, and I have a blast, and the, and those kids have a blast as well. You know. Yeah.
1: But is it a different game now? Because, you know, in, in, you look at every sport. I mean, can you imagine, uh, you know, the way they handle athletes now in college is, is, un, you know, incredible <laughs> compared to, yeah. say, you know, 15, 20 years ago, even that yeah, it I, is, you have to, have to be coached different. It doesn't, what worked, you know, back then when, and, and you still have to, I always look at you, you they're like, uh, you know, they're kids in a way. There's, you know, one, you motivate them each differently. Right and, and, and then but is it a different yeah. game now where you have to it's it, you, you can't train them like that anymore
0: and you can't and you can't talk to and to your point you can't talk to them all the same yeah. and a lot of it is and I don't think it's because everybody's different I think a lot of them and here's where I'll get myself in trouble a little mm-hmm. bit but a lot of them are looking for a reason to blame their their level of aptitude or their level or expectations were this for this one and why isn't he or she doing well. Mm -hmm. So they're looking for, well, because I'm being talked to like this or I'm being treated like that. So you had to, and for me, that's when I developed the, you know, the quarterly conversations with talent and the quarterly reviews. So everybody was on the same page as far as, you know, how people were coming along and, you had to make their schedules and you know you had to adjust everything so for me i learned very quickly everything had to be on paper and everything had to be you know with a, another coach as a, as a witness and and how can we make this as easy on you as possible till we've exhausted all resources and then say by the way you're rotten yeah or this just the business isn't for you yeah. so it's changed so much, and I think because it's changed so much, a lot of people are getting involved, knowing that if they failed, it's not them that failed; it's going to be someone else who, who caused them to fail. Yeah. Well, but in um, the meantime, you, you know, you get to make a heck of a living at it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, uh, you know, the, all these stories out there, and, and uh, you know, like the the, the the jelly donut story and the stink face yeah. and all that. And folks, if, if you want to hear about that, I'm, we're not going to really dwell into that unless you want to talk about it, but my my point being that what at what point did you realize that you know uh you got to be really careful with what what goes on in these in, in these sessions i mean it's it's like i know i i've heard you explain it and said it was one incident and this 6 years later this picture comes up and and that's that's our world today bill <laughs> <laughs>
0: right, you know? and that's and that's when you realize.
1: Yeah, but there was a point. Was there a point along? Because yeah. I'm sure there were other things you did to motivate these guys, or just be you do something just off the wall just to shake it up or whatever.
0: Yeah, uh, and and, and, I, and I say the same when all that stuff was happening. That was that was the talent calling the shots. Huh. And that's when I learned that trying to make trying to make them happier, want to show up the next day. Cost cost me a lot. I mean, it was uh, it was called Make a Deal Friday. Yeah. You know, so they'd come up with these crazy antics to get out of working out for, for three hours, you know. And so, okay, well, let's make a deal. What's, what's going to be the thing that takes you out of the workout? And 99% of the time, what they made the deal was was harder than any workout they were ever going to go through. Yeah. I mean, they squatted 2,500 times. And I got a phone call that night because I made the talent squat 2,500 times. Mm. They didn't tell the story of how they all made a deal and said, we'd rather squat 2,500 times than work out. And I'd look at them all as grown men and women and go, really? Yeah. And they go, yeah, deal. Okay, it's a deal. So I knew then that I thought I had a certain relationship with my with my talent and with my locker rooms. I knew then that I didn't have... I knew that I looked at things one way and that there were a chosen few that would look at it a different way. And that's when, when the story started coming back like that mm-hmm. is when I realized that this is not the same business.
1: Yeah. but, but you- Or
0: at least, and, and that's the thing, it was the same business on the road for the people who were doing it and making a living at it and traveling it, but for the people that were trying to get involved, it wasn't the same business.
1: Yeah, Do you look back at all, though, and, and are there... Uh- Things that you would like to have changed that maybe you felt I, I pushed too hard there, I, I crossed the line, I
0: No uh, no. I don't I don't look at one thing. I think I'd probably change a phrase or two. <laughs> you know, because yeah. you, you know, and you can't I, I wouldn't even use the word now just so I didn't offend anybody, but you couldn't you know, there's certain phrases you grew up with as a kid or yeah. I'll tell you a phrase, like, if someone called me half a sissy when I was growing up, it's because I could have ran faster. Mm-hmm. Don't be half a sissy. But right. that means a different thing nowadays, you know what I mean? Yeah. So there's certain there's certain phrases, <coughs> as I learned later on when I took over the developmental system, there's certain phrases I wouldn't use. Yeah. But again, when you were using them, you, you would hope the person that you were talking to understood it, and that's where my downfall was, was because the person I was talking to understood it, but it was the people that were standing around the corner listening could tell a different story. And that's, to me, that's the problem with social media and things like that. You weren't getting a story from someone who was offended. You were getting a story from someone else who just happened to be there and was offended by the way you were talking to someone else. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, I, I definitely, yeah, I, I stand by 99.8% of everything I've done. And I would definitely change a few phrases. Yeah.
1: So, um, uh, explain to our listeners, um, what the process is now finding talent. Cause I don't, I don't know if people really know how that happens. We know that they do have a very established minor league, uh, you know, with, the uh, bringing guys up. It started through uh, FCW and a uh, couple of other things they had going on. Now we've got NXT, but how does it, how does it work today? Because a lot, you know, there's people out there that would love to get into the business. Uh, some of them might have what it takes and, and be willing to sacrifice that. But what, what is the journey now today? Like to, to get to a point where uh, you can really be a true professional wrestler in the, in the world today.
0: There's, so um, there's still several options i always tell i always told everybody who, who stopped me in childhood or something what do i have to do to get invited to the performance center mm-hmm. and the first thing i would tell them is did you set up a profile on the website because on the on the website they have a spot for the performance center to where you can be you know upload your photos your resume your athletic you know and tell your story and they go through that you know every month probably even more so now. So if you catch someone's eye, you can be invited to the next training camp. The, the other side of it is now, especially with, with talent development, I know they go to a lot of independent shows, and if someone's name's been heard long enough, they send one of the, the coaches or, or I think it's William Regal out there and you know take a look at them and maybe get to talk to them. Um, the easiest thing now is just you got to be out there working um the more you work the more your name is heard and I always say this please go to a school where and it's not it's no disrespect to all trainers but if you're going to a school and you've never heard of the guy don't go don't because everybody everybody can teach you something I think but I'm, I'm a big fan of going to the right people but you just uh, your, your name has to be heard, and I told Austin Theory that years ago as a kid, and he just got into school, learned his trade. He's doing well. He's on everybody's radar. A guy like that, Ricochet's another one who I've loved watch coming up through the through the ranks, and and all these guys. But uh, to me, it, the only way to be known is to be persistent. I mean, mm-hmm. don't go to the performance center and bang on the glass door but be persistent and, and make sure for the love of Pete, there's still today in this day, and age, it's still hard to believe that I go to some seminars mm-hmm. and there's, there's men and women that have been trying to do this for five and six years and have never been in the gym a day in their life. Yeah. And I'm not saying become uh, drew McIntyre. I'm just saying, look like you can go, you know, look like you can put in the time and, and that's the thing that people don't come prepared for. They got great hair color they got a great tan. Their bodies look great, but they've never been pushed athletically. And you, I, that's where I find if you've never been coached before, when someone has that drill sergeant mentality, you're going to break down. I've seen it with Olympians and NFL guys and NBA guys and, and Major League Baseball guys. And Sean Merriman, who I'm a big fan as a football player, spent one day with me and said, This is too much. <laughs> you know, he's like, This is, his agent said, He's done more today. Than he does in a month, and he's all beat up.
1: And he's like, "I'm out."
0: So, <laughs> yeah, and it's so funny because you respect him, and then you just look at people and go, "Please," and then they come, they get invited to the three day tryout, which I, I always, I always say proudly with my chest out. I designed the training system, how they do it. I designed their their tryout camps, and everything was was from me. And that camp is made to break you, and it's just simple constant cardio and let's see what you're willing to do there's no banging there's no you know a million squats it's just we're gonna move for three days you came to try out and you want a job you know and and by the way a job starting at like 55 65k a year to learn the business
1: yeah well it's kind of the 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 modern version of stretching i guess just yeah (laughs) can't
0: yeah it's a the politically correct way of stretching someone is put them through
1: a tryout. Uh, Bill, are you encouraged by what's going on today with some of these other organizations, ring of honor. And of course we've got, you know, AEW that is uh, taking the uh, independent world by storm. Um, Do you like what you're seeing out there now? Are you, are you optimistic?
0: Yeah, I think it's, I think it's awesome. Um, I watched, uh, I'm not a, like, I know there's way more people, more up to date on Ring of Honor stuff than I am, but I, I watch as much of wrestling as I can. I'm a huge believer that when AEW sets their TV deal, and I hope it comes to them, you know, maybe by the end of the year, going into the new year, that they're going to be a force to, to be reckoned with. And I think those, I think the guys have the right mentality. I think they want to have fun. But they're making no, and I said this the other day in Alabama. Make no mistake, they're working hard, and for all the YouTube stuff they're doing, Cody's working hard. The oh, Bucks yeah. are working hard, and and Face Daniels, mm-hmm. you know, they're they're working hard behind the scenes. Yeah, and they know what it takes, and it's a good young group of guys, and and you know, you you add in uh, the crazy Canadian, you bring in Jericho with all that knowledge, and. Yeah. And if I understand it, Jr. is going to join them, and yeah. and then you got Billy Gunn. Who, it, if Billy Gunn teaches them nothing more than to just let things happen and let it become natural and, and be be entertaining and still be believable, they're they're going to go a long way. I, I'm a firm believer that AEW is uh, going to blow up because they they've just put too much time and effort into it to to fail and. Yeah. Uh, I, I I'm very yeah optimistic's a good word I like a lot of what I see and I've always been a fan of I don't critique anything oh I'm sorry I don't criticize it I critique it mm-hmm. so I sit here with my old coach's pad sometimes and go oh man I, I, maybe I maybe I talked about maybe changing that up or something because you can't help it. it's in your it's in your blood after 30 years All right but uh but I'm, I'm a huge fan of AEW and what they're about to do and if nothing else, look what they're doing. I mean, they're they're, they're yeah. An MGM.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's
0: absurd.
1: You know, and I've I've, I've told the the story many times uh, that when I was at Starcast last year, and everybody was it was right before they did the weigh in with Nick and and uh, and we were all ever they had everybody had gathered in the green room, and yeah. Cody got up on a chair, and it's like you like you said, they're having fun. And yeah. there was just atmosphere uh in that room. And there were people, there was, you know, old school guys in there that they had brought in and the respect that they show to all these guys uh, that comes from his lineage, you know, and the, and the, the, the bucks, you know, they, they, they get it and they, they are in touch with their fans. And my whole feeling was, I mean, I left that weekend. I just felt so optimistic about the business. If yeah. these are the guys that are shaping it. And my, my only fear is I just hope they can keep what they're doing the way it is, uh, you know, if it, if it becomes corporate, then we'll, you know, I, I just wonder, where right? It become like, you know, then, then the funds going to be taken out of it. But right, I'm telling you, what they, I they saw they there
0: become a product of the environment, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. But if they can keep that in charge of their own destinies, and the, you know, uh, and uh, I
0: it, wholeheartedly agree.
1: Yeah, it, it could be it could be really awesome, and with that, and and I'm not saying that you know, will we see them on the level of WWE. I, I I, I'm not saying that at all, but what impact do you think they could have on the WWE? And I think in some ways we're seeing it already because now some of these guys they got they got options,
0: and, and that's it uh, for for a lot of for a lot of guys and girls that have never done this before. They don't mm. understand they have options. Yeah, but if you if you have a if you have a good head on your shoulders and you've got you've got some time under your belt. And I've always said this to people before AEW and, and even before Impact years and years ago, was if, you, if you're doing something and you enjoy it, don't, don't come right away. Go make your money on the schedule that you're making, that you like, that works for you, and enjoy the business you're in before you decide to really set your feet in into boots that you're going to have to stay in for a while, if that makes sense. So I, I think a lot of the guys and girls do have options, and, and you see the rumblings and hear them, and, you know, you see them in the sheets and on the news, and people are asking for releases, and if I don't get a push, and I don't believe in any of that stuff, but I do believe the younger guys are going to start exploring, well, what if I just keep training, you know, with Rory Fox for a little bit, and maybe I get an opportunity with with AEW, and maybe I can get in with, you know, because I knew I met the Bucks here, and and the relationships they're building with AAA and everywhere else are only gonna are only gonna help them.
1: Yeah, and and also the fact that, like as I mentioned, they're in charge of their destiny. Um, a lot of these guys, you know, where could you go work where your merchandise is yours? And these guys yeah, are making yeah. these guys are making probably as much uh, from that. As they are making it in the ring. So, I mean, you, yeah. you could make a really good living, and especially with all the other social media opportunities out there.
0: And your schedule is still yours right, right. now until there's a TV and stuff. Yeah. So, you, you know, you make your obligations with them, and then you, they they encourage you to go out there because you're selling their product. Yeah. And it's a, I think it's a good time, and, and, you know, you need this time. I think, a, I think it's going to help a lot of people.
1: Yeah. So uh, tell everybody what you're up to now and uh, how they get in touch with you.
0: Well, now um, I, uh, I'm the founder of uh, the Carrie Ann DeMott Foundation, my, my daughter, for anyone who is not hip to what we've been doing. Just over three years ago, my daughter was killed by a drunk driver. Mm. Um, so I've stopped everything else. I, I travel the nation. I speak to students and law enforcement and youth groups about the decisions we make and how they affect people. Um, it gives me an opportunity to share my knowledge of traveling the world. I, I talk about social media and bullying and all the things that I'm well versed in, mm-hmm. and I get to introduce my daughter's story and and hopefully inspire and motivate people to make better decisions, both as professional athletes and students and 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 parents um, and. When I get the rare occasion, I still do wrestling seminars because uh, I love to be in the ring and I love to be around men and women that want to do it. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, very easy to to contact me. It's com. That's for all speaking events. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on uh, Instagram as the Bill Demot and um, you, you have to yeah, you have to attack every day. Mm. And um, you, you, you really find out who you are. Yeah. So, in the grand scheme of things, every day I say this to everybody who's listening, and and I'm grateful for all the support over the past three years. And as we we continue to try to go forward, and and I and I say to everybody, I've I've worked with legislation, and I've stood on the House floor and addressed the Senate, and that's because of my wrestling background, because of the tools they gave me to speak to people. Uh, and how to how to act in front of people and how to use social media and all the things that they now use on a daily basis they think aren't important i try to remind them of how important they really are so
1: yeah. well bill I, I am i am so sorry you live with that tragedy every day but Thank uh, you, sir. It, but it's really it's awesome that you're out there uh spreading the word so that others don't have to experience that same thing yeah. i mean, it's a uh, yes sir well, it's been awesome talking to you, Bill. Uh, really, I'm glad that uh, we finally met at least on the phone. I hope one day we uh, meet in person. So, uh, thank you so well, much I, for being on the It's Time. a
0: pleasure. I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, I had a brief encounter with you in uh, up in Stanford as you were leaving the building one day. <laughs> I was walking in, and I kind of I kind of fangirled a little bit and couldn't say hello because uh, I'm always a big fan of uh, everybody in the business, and yeah. you were you were leaving. Uh, you were leaving. You were down by tracks.
1: Oh wow! Yeah, and I wish
0: I could tell you who you were with, but you were down by tracks, and I was going into tracks, and I was like, I was like, <laughs> so but I never did say hello. Oh, and, yeah, we used to spend uh, a
1: lot of time down there. <laughs>
0: yes, sir. But uh, it is an honor, and I, I appreciate your time, and I hope to see you soon.
1: All right, man. Thank thank you so much. Thank Take you, care.
0: John. All righty.
1: Well, I certainly enjoyed my conversation with Bill Demott. Uh, tough way we wrap that up. He talks about losing his daughter, but uh, how this has driven him to get the word out about uh, drunk driving and the tragedy that uh, that it has brought to our country—several tragedies, one after another—and he's uh, trying to uh, spread the word, and that'll hopefully the, the, so that you don't, uh, someone like you, doesn't have to go through what he's gone through. But, uh, you know, he's made quite a, a number of contributions to the business. Uh, people may disagree with uh, how his methods of training, but he trained some of the best out there and uh, uh, certainly uh, did a lot for the WWE and had a great career. So I uh, really enjoyed my conversation with Bill. Uh, you can uh, help him out there. You saw there at the end of the podcast if you want to get in touch and be able to help out as he uh, has his, his quest out there to uh, spread awareness about drunk driving out there. So, Folks, help them out if you can. And uh, we'll have another great episode coming your way next week. I'll tell you about that in just a second, although I won't really, but I'll tell you how we're going to get there. But once again, I want to uh, thank What For Apparel. Uh, what For Apparel helps turn your T-shirt designs into cash, and there is zero upfront costs. For more information, once again, go to slash contact. That's whatforapparel.com. That's F-O-R, not the number, whatforapparel.com slash contact or go to at whatforapparel on Twitter and send them a message for your free quote and consultation. And be sure to tell them that I sent you. Sean Mooney sent you, okay? Uh, as I mentioned, we got uh, more fun on the way. I can't wait to find out who our Patreon members decide who is going to be our guest this next week. Uh, to get in on all the fun, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash Mooney. That's patreon.com slash Primetime Mooney. Oh boy, we have so much content there and we keep putting up more every single day. So check it out. And one of the things you get to have done for you when you become a Patreon member of Primetime with Sean Mooney is you get a birthday shout out. So we got one this week. This goes out to Edwin Lashley. Uh, Happy birthday, Edwin. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Edwin. And many more. So great week, Uh, coming up, folks. I hope you have a good one, and I will be right here again for you to help you get through it all. I'm Sean Mooney, and I am out.